0: This is a hard one for me to even talk about because John Adrian Velasquez is someone who I consider, well, more than a close friend, I consider him extended family. Um, I hate to report that nothing much has changed since the episode I recorded with him behind the walls of Maximum Security Prison, Sing Sing. Correctional Facility on March 6th, of 2017. He's still there. I mean, just think about, that's two and a half years ago. And he's been in for well over two decades now. The bad news is that even with a tremendous amount of effort from so many great advocates, um, his motion for a new trial based on a Brady violation was denied. I'm not really sure how that could happen. The Brady violation would seem to be obvious to almost anyone. Um, but this judge didn't see it that way. So J.J. is is good at anyone at at making the best of a terrible situation, and I will say this. uh, Sing Sing Correctional hosts uh, some wonderful events called Choices, which are focused on helping children of inmates follow their own paths in life and not make uh, the mistakes that their fathers uh, may have made. In J.J.'s case, so John Eugen's case, he didn't make any mistakes, but um, many of the men who are incarcerated there certainly did things that that we want to help steer their children away from so in april 2017 in december of 2018 jj john adrian organized fundraised and was the master of ceremonies of the choices events i was there it was a powerful presentation in october of 2017 he organized coordinated and co-moderated nycheps that's nycheps second annual conference chef's collective goal is to increase access to higher education for those impacted by the criminal justice system, and to pool resources in order to create seamless access to quality education inside prison and beyond. In October 2017, he also organized and facilitated the first ever job readiness and reentry initiative at Sing Sing for individuals in the Sing Sing population who have 18 months or less until they're to be released. This designed to prepare them for reentry. So important. While imprisoned. John Adrian has been a teacher fellow for Columbia University in the psychology course from September to December of 2018, and he's still an administrative program assistant for Hudson Link for higher education in prison, a position he's held since 2015. His accomplishments behind bars are above and beyond the accomplishments of so many people in free society, and I just want to get him home.
5: The choice to be in that lineup was the last choice I made as a free man. A year later, I ended up right in the system.
6: I'm going to be one of those people who everyone in the world is going to think is a monster or suspect is a monster for the rest of my life, and I'm just going to have
5: to come to peace with that. Somebody was able to look at my picture in a database and say that I was somewhere where I definitely wasn't.
3: I overheard three of the jailers discussing what part they might have to play in my hanging. They had been told that two prison officers would have to participate in my execution.
2: And I walked back inside that prison for the last time, man. All hell broke loose, man.
0: Welcome to another edition of Wrongful Conviction. Today's a very special day because this is the debut of Wrongful Conviction Behind Bars. And our guest today is my dear friend, an innocent man, Stuck in a nightmare here at Sing Sing Prison, John Adrian Velasquez, also known as J.J. John Adrian Velasquez, convicted of killing a retired New York City police officer during a botched robbery in Harlem. 59-year-old Albert Ward was killed. Velasquez was found guilty of second-degree murder.
6: J.J. Velasquez was thrown in a lineup and fingered for murder by a drug dealer who the police threatened with arrest. With no physical evidence, Velasquez was prosecuted
0: for murder. His sentence, 25 years to life. Velasquez remains in prison. JJ, welcome to the show.
5: Thank you so much for having me. You're
0: hearing a lot of background noise today, and there's a very simple reason for that, which is that we are inside of Sing Sing Correctional Facility, and it is a noisy place, and there's really no getting away from it. I apologize for any distractions that you're going to experience during today's show. We've highlighted the cases of over a dozen people so far who've been exonerated, and my hope is that in bringing more exposure and light to your situation, that this will be another part of the process of getting you out. Because JJ is, is just as innocent as any of the people who've been on the show, but as of yet, he has not been able to win his freedom. So, so that's what we're here to talk about today. But before we even get into that, I want to go back. Let's go back to how you grew up, where you grew up. You know, we like to always give a little context.
5: Sure. I'm a native New Yorker, grew up in a middle-class family home. My mother was a health care worker, and eventually she went through training and became a union organizer for 1199. My father is a former, was a former U.S. Army veteran who later became an Amtrak police officer. By the age of 10, things changed in my household. I started to realize a lot of arguments and fights were happening between my parents. And it was because my father was actually living a double life. He had two families. I found out for the first time that I had a younger brother that was five years younger than me. Half brother from another mother. I was kind of ecstatic to have a brother at that time. I was young and I was naive and I didn't really get to see what was about to happen because everything changed. The dynamics of my household changed. My father wasn't around as much anymore. And he made it his business to remain present in my life. But it's impossible to be two places at once. And eventually, I started to fill that void that I missed with my father by spending more time in the devil's playground. And for those that are listening that may not understand what the devil's playground is, the streets of New York are harsh. And when you go out there and you start to experience and be exposed to the streets, you start being overwhelmed by certain environmental factors. And in my particular neighborhood, there was a lot of negative peer influence. And that kind of changed the dynamics of my thinking. It changed the trajectory of my interests, where at one point all I cared about was school, sports, and home. And then a time came where I lost interest in home, and school, but I still had that interest in sports. I had this dream because I was good. Baseball was really where I was at. A lot of people believed in my talent. I had gotten hit by a bus at the corner of my school when I was 16, days after my 16th birthday. And when the doctors told me that I would never be able to compete at the same level that I was used to, that changed my life. That was a crossroad. At that point, when school went out the window, Well, when sports went out the window, rather, school went out the window with it. And I started cutting class, and before you knew it, I became so rebellious. There were so many arguments in my household with my moms, and I would try to play my father against my mother and my mother against my father, and eventually I just got tired of it all, and I ran away from home. And in search of my independence, in pursuit of my independence, I found myself homeless. I've had many nights where I went to sleep hungry, And um, I know what it is to live off of a dollar of salami and a dollar of cheese and a stolen loaf of bread. And that's basically where everything started for me as a whole different aspect of living in New York because I was on my own and I didn't have working papers. I didn't have an ID. I was a high school dropout. I'm running from my mother, and my father, so I can't I gotta stay away from police. I gotta stay away from anybody who can officially report me to my family. And it was a matter of pride. Like I left and I didn't wanna go back. And then there was also a matter of fear where it was like, I'm gonna be judged. I'm gonna get scolded. You know, so there was shame. There was a lot of different, factors playing in. And it just made me go deeper and deeper. And it was like, I realized now that that was the worst choice in my life, because all I did from that point forward was continue to make worse choices that dig the deeper grave. You somehow
0: or other managed to survive very difficult circumstances, a lot of disappointments, a lot of things that no child should have to go through and end up on the streets. But you turned it around to the extent that you met a great woman, right? And you had a couple of kids. Yeah. So how did you go from a 16, 17-year-old kid on the streets to being a 22-year-old man with a couple of kids and a wife and, and, and more of a stable situation?
5: So basically what happened is, being in the streets, I met Vanessa. I met her at 16, turning 17. Eventually, I started living with her, and her family took me in. And I was still trying to survive, and I was moving too fast for my own good. Before you knew it, I was a father. And that made me start to take life a lot more seriously. And I'm trying to figure out my way and say, all right, listen, I need to do something and I need to do something to ensure that my family's going to be all right. Tried to look for jobs. But again, my high school dropout at that point, I didn't know what skills I may have had that were employable. I was a child trying to find my way. Before you knew it, I was a father with another child on the way. And it was rough, I was basically living off of Vanessa cause she was getting welfare and it's all social service, you know, SSI, I mean, the, the rent was under a hundred dollars so it was affordable, you know, but at the same token they don't know I'm living there. And it's crazy because, yeah, I got arrested a few times. No charges ever, you know, stuck. I've gotten arrested for loitering. I've gotten arrested for all kinds of little nonsense that happens in the neighborhood. They gave me a trespassing for going to see a friend in the projects because I don't live in the projects. What people need to realize in New York and all over the world is that all it takes for you to be in my shoes is to get arrested, for them to take a picture, for them to take your name and put it in a system, for them to take your fingerprints, that's what starts everything. That's what started it for me. Somebody was able to look at my picture in a database and say that I was somewhere where I definitely wasn't.
0: And I want to I want to talk about that for a second, JJ, because I'm very well aware of the fact that in the poorest neighborhoods, like the one that you were residing in, they do these sweeps and they'll pick people up for <laughs> riding a bike on the sidewalk or, like you said, visiting a
4: friend. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not sure how that's a crime. You know,
0: trespassing, you could call trespassing anything. I mean, you might as well arrest somebody for breathing. It's, you know, it's almost a fait accompli that a young person like yourself, especially a person of color, is going to end up in the system. At some in some form or another for doing the same type of thing that other people in other parts of the city or other parts of the country would not get arrested for. As you said, that starts a chain of events that can only have negative consequences. And in your case, tragic consequences. When I tell these stories to people, they go, but that, that can't be. Like, you can't convict somebody with no evidence, but you can. Absolutely.
5: So there you were, you have your two kids. You're, you're turning your life around, doing the best you can at the time. Yeah, I was actually a student at TCI, Technical Careers Institute, trying to learn about computer programming, trying to get a skill that would be employable. And to your credit, it's
0: interesting because I think for some people the responsibility of fatherhood, of having become a father at such a young age, causes them to run. But in your case, you took it seriously and you took it as, actually as an opportunity to turn your life around. Absolutely. So one day, everything changed.
5: It was almost like a blink of an eye. I received a phone call, it was a Saturday morning, And it's from my brother's mother, Carmen, who I also have a very close relationship with. And basically my license, my driver's license was addressed to my father's address. And that's where Carmen and my brother, Jason, live. So they went to that apartment at like four in the morning, Friday night going into Saturday morning. And they were looking for me. They had police officers looking for me. And they tried to even grab up my little brother Now, at the time, I was 21 years old. So my little brother being five years younger than me is 16 years old. The description was given of two male blacks from 25 to 30 years old. Why are you trying to grab up this child? Clearly, he looks like a child. Clearly, he doesn't look like me either. And neither one of us appear to be two black men, right? But they're trying to grab him thinking that he's me for whatever odd reason. And then, you know, Carmen just makes a big stink and says, do you understand that this is the house of an officer who died within the last 10 months do you understand what you're doing you're violating the children of somebody who served this country just like you and that's when they were like they eased up a little bit they didn't have a warrant for arrest so they gave her a card and said listen when you get in touch with Mr. Velasquez please have him get in touch with us we're trying to help him I was living in the Bronx with Vanessa and I get this call from Carmen and it's a startling call because she's like, listen, you know, the cops are looking for you. They're saying something about you shot a police officer and that you need to call them. They're making it seem very serious. They came in here deep. And I'm like, listen, Carmen, what's going on? What are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. Slow down. And she's like, yo, listen, all I know, here's a number. They want you to call. I'm like, what precinct did they come from? You know, where's this coming from? listen, here's the name. His name is Joseph LaTrenta. Here's his phone number. They told me the precinct. At the time, it was the 28th precinct. I don't think I even registered that. Was this four in the morning? She called me about nine in the morning. She waited until a decent time, I guess, to call me. At that point, I started to kind of like panic and I was frantic. And I have two children. One is a child that's only a few weeks old. I have Vanessa there, and Vanessa realized from the phone call that something serious is going on, but she's like, what's going on? And I'm like, yo, just wait a minute. I, I got to process this. Like, I really don't even know what's going on. I'm like, let me call my mother. So I call my mother, and I'm like, yo, ma, you know, they're saying the police are looking for me. She started getting hysterical on the phone. What happened? And I'm like, listen, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. This is what I know. I know the police are looking for me. I know it's the weekend. I know it's not a good time to get into contact with the police because I can't see a judge or anybody else until maybe one day if they come for me. They're saying this is serious. They're saying I shot a cop. I have no idea what this is about, but I'm scared and I need your help. What are we going to do? So she's like, stay there. I'm coming. My mother lives upstate at the time. And um, she came and picked me up, and she took me to the church that we used to attend together regularly on the weekend. It's called Love Gospel Assembly. We went to the church, and there were a few people there. And we started to tell them what was going on, but everything was so limited. Like, we didn't have any real knowledge. And they're saying, listen, the first thing you got to do is get an attorney and contact the precinct. So we try to figure out, you know, who would be a good lawyer. So I I try to speak to a couple of my friends that I know have been involved in the system. Do you know any good lawyers? They tell me a name. His name is Franklin Gould. May he rest in peace at this point. I've learned that he has passed away recently. So I'm trying to get in touch with Franklin Gould. Bad part about this, again, it's the weekend. How do you get in touch with a lawyer over the weekend, right? And uh, we're waiting for Frank Gould to get back to us. And in that time, the range of emotions that we went through as a family. Picture us being in a car, driving around aimlessly. It's my mother, me, Vanessa, JJ, which is my son, right? I don't want to confuse nobody. And Jacob. And JJ is three years old at the time. Jacob is a few weeks. He was born December 20th, and this is January maybe 30th. So he's a little bit more than a month and we're driving around aimlessly and aimlessly, and every time I see a police car, it's like I get this little chill, and I don't know what's gonna happen here. Eventually, we get in touch with this lawyer. We were outside of a restaurant, and I remember I spoke to him briefly. I didn't have any information for him. I didn't know what to tell him. He's asking me for information like I'm supposed to know certain things. I don't know nothing. All you know is that the cops are I looking know, for cops you are for, looking for me for the murder of a police a officer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, I didn't even know there was a murder at the time. At that point, all I was told was that a cop was shot. But I just want to address this and get it over with because the longer I'm out here, the more my life is in jeopardy. And he wants you to
0: give him details,
5: which you would have no. I don't no- have them. Right. I'm trying to tell him I'm hiring you so you can get the details. Right. That That's why I'm calling you. So he said that he had contacted the precinct but that they weren't giving me any information. They just wanted me to turn myself in. But I left them on the phone with my mother. And when my mother came back, I was so upset. I was scared, but I was so upset that I decided there's no way I want to deal with this guy because this lawyer told my mother that if we were to get pulled over by police, that I should put my head down in the ground and that my mother should throw her body over me to make sure that nothing happens to me because I could get shot. And I didn't like that. You know, if anything, he should have said that to me while I was on the phone. You don't say that to my mother. He had a frantic, you yeah, know.
0: That's a strange thing for a lawyer to say. I mean, I understand he was in a certain way trying to prevent a Looking catastrophe back, yeah, from happening. Yeah, absolutely. But that's a little bit hysterical. Yeah. You know, and Yeah, and you're absolutely right. I mean, he should have addressed that directly with you. Right. So you ended up not engaging with him. I didn't
5: engage with him. We ended up dealing with an attorney. I believe his name is Goldstein. I don't know his first name. And he told us to go to a hotel. And uh, we got a hotel. We called him from the hotel, gave him the address. And everything is crazy at this point. Vanessa and my mother go get the hotel room. I'm sneaking in through the back. I'm afraid. And I'm staying in the hotel room. I'm waiting for this guy. So the lawyer comes. He comes to the hotel, and he meets me. And he's like, all right, how you doing? This is what's going to happen. I contacted the precinct. I told him that I'm arranging to turn you in on Monday, right? Because it was Saturday still. So he says, I'm going to turn you in on Monday. Until then, I want you to stay in this hotel room. I do not want you to leave this hotel room. I want you to shave your face. I want you to be clean shaven. We're going to walk into that precinct early in the morning on Monday, and we're going to deal with this situation. I want $1,000 right now. I want $1,000 the day that you turn yourself in on Monday. And then you'll be locked up. And Friday, you'll be going to an arraignment. And at that point, I want $5,000. And I'm like, what are you not getting? I didn't do anything. What are you talking about that I got to give you money now, give you money again, then give you money on Friday, and you're saying that I'm going to spend five days in jail? What are you representing me for? And he's like, listen, I'm just telling you, these are some serious charges. This is what's going to happen. You want me to be real with you or not? So I give him the money. I gave him the first $1,000, and um, I'm just frantic. I don't know what's going to happen. This guy's telling me now that I'm, I'm going to jail. Like It doesn't matter what I did or didn't do. I'm going to jail.
0: And let's go back for a second. I mean, we're talking 20 years ago. That was a lot of money. I mean, it's a lot of money now. Yeah. That was a lot of money in,
5: Absolutely. in, in, in he the actually, 90s. He actually said that the case was going to cost $50,000 before everything was said and done because I would be going to trial on this, on this case. So he basically convicted me before we even got to the precinct. So this is the mindset that I'm dealing with. Already two lawyers have rubbed me the wrong way. And at that time, I'm not measuring if maybe it's because of the emotions that I have. Something inside of me. Maybe it's not them. I'm not thinking like that. I was 21 years old. And eventually, you know, I'm just sitting there and I keep staring at my children. I'm staring at Vanessa and I'm staring at my mother and I'm saying... This might be the last time I get to see my children. This might be the last time I get to see my mother. How did this happen? It's
0: literally everybody's worst nightmare. Everybody's out to get you. You didn't do anything. And it's the most terrible thing that you could be accused of the murder or the shooting of a police officer is is right at the top of of the list of things that you don't want to be wrongly accused
5: of. And bear in mind, you're talking to the son of a police officer. I was raised in a police officer's household. Right. I mean, what sense would it make for me to go out on a rampage and shoot a police officer? That's crazy.
0: And you had no history of violence and none of it adds up. The nightmare is is growing as you are encountering these people who are supposed to be on your side, the people who are supposed to be helping you, right? Your only chance is to man. get a lawyer that's going to
5: represent you. Monday comes. Actually, let's step back just a second. Sunday, I get a call from Frank Gould. And Frank Gould, man, there's something about this guy. He's a real smooth talker. He made me feel comfortable. And he said, yo, listen, don't worry about that guy, Goldstein. I'm going to see if I can get the $1,000 from him. If not, don't worry about it. We're not even talking about money right now. You're in a serious dilemma, and guess what? I want to meet you outside that precinct. We're going to meet in the morning time. I'm going to walk in there with you. We're going to see what's going on. You wait for my phone call. After my phone call, you meet me in front of the 28th precinct, and we'll deal with this situation. He made me feel a thousand times better. I mean, he knew how to talk to me. He's he's talking to me like, all right, you're innocent. We're going to see what's going on, and we're going to play this by ear not you're going to jail you're going to get shot that's not what somebody wants to hear and um i really respected that and eventually monday came and that's exactly what happened we had found out that the apartment in the bronx 1344 university avenue the door to our apartment was hanging off the hinges with a police lock on it which means that the police had gone into the building Went into my apartment, knocked down the door. They've been in it. They said it was trash. These were neighbors that ended up calling. They got in touch with Vanessa, I believe. So we sent Vanessa home, and my mother took me to the precinct to meet my attorneys. So now we get to the front, and Frank Gould's there with another attorney. Her name is Susan Walsh. We're on the steps. My mother's like, you know, you want me to stay and wait for you out here? I said, listen, I don't know what's going to happen. Just go home. If anything, I'll take a cab. Just go home. And she's like, all right. And, I mean, that was the last time I got to touch my mother as a free person. It's kind of crazy. And um, we walked into the precinct, and when we went in there, Frank said, give me a minute. He left me there with Susan. I remember him coming back and saying, let's go. I said, what you mean, let's go? He said, let's get out of here. They don't got no warrant for your arrest. So we're walking out, and I'm like, listen, Frank, you really have to make me understand what's going on. I've been frantic for an entire weekend, running around with my family, staying in hotels, being threatened by lawyers. And you're telling me we could just walk away from this. And he's like, they don't have a warrant for your arrest. So I want you to go home. I said, and then what happens when I go home? I got a door hanging off a hinge. What happens when I go home? Is this over? He said, no, it's not over. I said, what do you mean it's not over? He says, they want to put you in a lineup. I'm not going to let them put you in a lineup. I said, what happens if I don't get picked in that lineup? He says, then you're free. I said, so I'm going in that lineup. He says, no, you're not. Let us do our job. Let them do their job. Okay? I'm like, no, it's not okay. I want to go in that lineup. You're telling me that the only way that this is going to be over is if I go in that lineup and I don't get picked. I'm telling you I didn't do this crime. So I'm going in that lineup. He says, if you get picked in that lineup, your life is going to change forever. You're going to jail. I said, And what happens if I leave? What, do they go pick me up, put something in my pocket? What, do they shoot at me? Do you realize what I've been through this weekend? I'm going in that lineup. And that's exactly what we did. We walked back in that precinct, and I volunteered for that lineup. I stood in a bullpen, like the outside area of a bullpen, sitting in a chair with Susan Walsh for a couple of hours while they went and got some fillers. And this is the bizarre part of the story, too, because at this point—
0: it's interesting, and it's important that you highlighted that. I mean, you just spent the weekend like a fugitive, hiding out. That's exactly then what I Then you come to like. find out they don't even have a warrant for your arrest. Now you're volunteering for a lineup, which you would be a little nuts if you were actually guilty to go and do that. Absolutely. Right? That, doesn't, that doesn't add up. And then, you know, you don't have to be a professor of criminology to understand that, right? <laughs> and then on top of that, you didn't know this at the time, but... The suspect they were looking for was a guy named Mustafa. Is is any part of your name Mustafa? Absolutely not. And the suspect they were looking for was a black male with dreads, right? Right. Have you ever been a black male or had dreads? Maybe in another life. Right. So it would be pretty much, it would seem like an open and shut situation. And there were numerous witnesses who all agreed on this description. It wasn't like there was one that said this and one that said that. And There were numerous witnesses who all said that the suspect the the police were looking for was a guy whose street name was Mustafa. And I want to encourage people to watch the show on JJ called Conviction, because in it you'll see the actual police sketch. Right. Which, it doesn't look any more like you than it looks like me. It's a guy, it's a black guy with dreads. Had you known that, it would have been perfectly logical for you to go into the lineup. And I think people can identify with the idea that you're going in there and saying, well, I mean, you grew up as the son of a police officer. You're going to say to yourself, well, the system's going to work. Absolutely. Right? I mean... That was my belief. Right. You're going to go in there and there's no way that somebody's going to pick you out of that lineup, even not knowing what we just talked about, right? But had you known that, you would have been 100% sure that if you go in there, they can't pick you out of that lineup. So... Finally, now you're going into the lineup. Yes. And got to be a surreal experience, too. It was. Like kind of right out of a movie, right? Yeah, But Except for this time, you're not watching, you're actually in it.
5: Well, that was my second time ever being in a lineup. First time, I was a student at Martin Luther King High School, and uh, they had this little bus coming around, and they were offering us $5 to appear in a lineup. And I took it, $5, you know, I'm going to take that. And uh, I went to a lineup. So it wasn't the first time I was in a lineup, but it was the first time I was in a lineup as a suspect. And, you know, I don't know what's going on on the other side, if there's a mirror there. And I don't know what's going on on the other side, but I do know that Susan Walsh is on that side. So what happened was when Frank Gould finally realized that I was determined to go into that precinct and volunteer for the lineup, he said, listen, if you're going in for the lineup, you're going to stay here with Susan. I have to leave because it would be a conflict of interest for me to be your witness and your attorney. So she's an attorney, and she is your witness. And that's basically where I still felt comfortable, because I was like, she's there, and I'm going to be all right. And uh, sure enough, at some point, told number three to stand and approach the mirror. And then they told him to sit down. Then they said, number two, we need you to stand up and approach the mirror. And I did that, and I sat back down. They said, everybody said, thank you. you hear It's like a speaker somewhere in the room. And uh, he's like, thank you. Be there shortly. Somebody comes and opens the door and says, everybody can leave. I start to get up. He's like, no, you stay. So I don't know if I have to fill out some paperwork or something before I leave. But I said, all right, I sit down. Eventually, they take me around back to the same room, and Susan's there. And she's like... Jay, I'm sorry, but uh, you're going to be staying. I said, what are you talking about? I'm going to be staying. She said, you know, you were picked, but there's some serious problems with your lineup. They made me wear a hat. I don't know that that's a problem then, but they, they made us all wear these black pullover hats, winter hats, ski hats. They had a problem with fillers. But at the end of the day, there's an existing affidavit from Susan Walsh. She's admitting that my lineup was manipulated on that day. And unbeknownst to me, what she's saying is that she had an argument with the police officers about my position. She wanted me between number five and number six. And they said, nah, we're not doing that here. He's sitting right there. He's number two. They didn't want you to be between five and six. They wanted you to be number two. What is the significance of that? Even towards trial, I really didn't understand the significance of it. But now, in all my studies, it's supposed to be kind of a random process. And there's a lot of studies going on now about sequential lineups and double blind lineups. By putting me in a certain position, it can be inferred that you have already told these witnesses that an individual that committed the crime is going to be sitting in a particular position.
0: Right. So, so that will
5: enable the identification.
0: Right, of course, they could say up front, you know, take a take a real close look at number 2. Yeah. Right? They could say and that's why a double blind and for those of you listening, a double blind means that the person conducting whether it's a police officer or anyone else conducting the lineup should not know, cannot know who the suspect is because Absolutely. Even if their intentions are pure, mm-hmm. they subconsciously can steer a witness Absolutely. to just sort of take another. I mean, you're doing good. I know this is very difficult for mm-hmm. you, but you know you got to really try harder because what, what we've seen it many times. A witness will say, well, "I don't know. I don't. I don't think I see the person there." And they go, well, "Listen. I mean, we really need your help. You know, this is a brutal mm-hmm. crime. This is a. We've got to get this guy off the streets." What they should be saying is. We don't know whether the actual killer, the actual perpetrator mm-hmm. is in this lineup. Absolutely. But if you see them, then we need your help. But they don't do that. They don't. Typically. They they and they may in, in many cases, and we don't know, but in your cause we don't know what was going on in that room, but mm-hmm. it's entirely possible that in your case that your suspicions are true. That they said, We think we got the guy, we think it's number two. Take a look. Let's see if you agree, right? Anything like that, even something much more subtle than that can really terribly mess up the process and, and eliminate objectivity,
5: Absolutely. which even then memory
0: is far from perfect.
5: Because that's what a lineup does. Who looks most like the individual? It's not who looks most like the individual. Who did it? That's right. That's and why we're here. And I was selected by three individuals, Philip Jones, Robert Jones, who are both brothers, and Augustus Brown later learning that Augustus Brown had actually been the person who selected my photo, which made me a suspect. So there was really no need for him to come and identify me again. So if you, if you look at it in a realistic manner at the lineup, there were only two people who really identified me because Augustus Brown had already made me a suspect. But technically, all three of those individuals out of five individuals had identified me.
0: And we know that Augustus Brown had a very good reason to want to identify you, because Augustus Brown was a heroin dealer. Yes, he was. So not somebody you would consider to be a top-notch witness or a reliable witness necessarily. And he had a motivation, which was that when he was picked up, and correct me if I'm wrong, when he was picked up, he was in possession of 10 bags of heroin. Yes, he was. And the cops weren't letting him leave until he identified somebody. They wanted this case solved.
5: Yes. Augustus Brown is an interesting character all to himself. He has a rap sheet that we can stick on the wall and drop to the floor. But in reality, he was actively on probation at that time. We come to find out a trial that he wasn't reporting. So he had already absconded from probation. Right. Which is why he fled before any police would arrive. When he gets picked up, because he didn't come to the precinct voluntarily, he was sent sent multiple messages to come to the precinct. He was arrested on a street corner that he sold drugs on. He did get caught with 10 bags of heroin on him. He was brought to a precinct, and he spent hours in that precinct. He came about 3 o'clock, and he wasn't let go until about 11 o'clock at night from a different precinct. He has stated on multiple occasions that he was wrong and that he was forced to do what he did. And there's layers to this. So when he was at the precinct, they were trying to tie him in as an accessory to murder. They told him, we got you in possession of drugs. You violated your probation, and you fled the scene, and we have witnesses who think that you were a part of the team. So you're gonna be charged with accessory to murder if you don't help us do something. He looks at thousands of photos, It's supposed to be eight photos per page, and he looked at a total of 156 pages. But if you look at the description that he initially gave to the police, which was consistent and unanimous in the descriptions provided by all witnesses that stated that two black males came into that place and victimized these individuals. One was dark-skinned and one was light-skinned. The light-skinned individual had dreads or braids. I don't know which one. Some of them said braids, some of them said dreads. By the way, it's also arguable
0: that your picture shouldn't have been in there in the first place since you were never convicted of anything.
2: Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. But it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true
6: She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers.
4: Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Back to where we were at. You're now in this Kafka-esque, and I always say that, but it's true, nightmare, where you're ready to leave the police station. You know they must have identified somebody else or nobody Mm -hmm. because you didn't do anything. and
5: You don't even know it, but you don't match the description. Not even close. But they tell you to stay. Yeah, so they tell me to stay. Susan says, listen, we'll see you in court tomorrow. You'll be arraigned and we'll take it day by day. Take it one step at a time. In the meantime, before I leave, I want you just to be conscious of something. We told these officers that we took pictures of you in your underwear in a hotel and that if they touch you, they will be losing their job. So you should feel safe. You should be all right. Do not speak to them about anything. And from that point, I was escorted into this small cage that had a concrete slab and a bunch of bars. And I stood there for I don't know how long. And, and you know, it was, real, it was a real surreal experience where it was just like, you know what, you got to realize at this point, you just have to block everything out and deal with the situation. You know what I mean? Don't talk to them. Don't ask them no more questions. Don't provoke them. Just deal with it. And that's what I did. Eventually, we got to Central Booking, and Central Booking's like another zoo, right? They they herd you from one place to another, you're shackled up on a chain gang, you got shackles on your feet, and you go from one bullpen to another bullpen, and it's 20, 30 of you moving at the same time. People are sitting on the floor, you have homeless people in there, the smell is crazy. Some of these places, the plumbing is all messed up, so you might have some feces in the toilet or some urine in the toilet. You might have urine on the floor because it might have flowed out, you know, and there's just a bunch of people around, and you're lucky if you get a bench to sit on or whatever. And they kept moving, moving the chain, moving the chain. And eventually you get to this place, and they start taking your stuff out of your pockets, and they're searching you on a wall. And... um. That's when I had my first serious experience with corrections. Officer just out of nowhere, towering officer big, hits me in the back. And I never knew that you can get your wind knocked out from getting hit in the back. Knocks me knocks me down. I'm conscious, but I'm just like blown away and he's just wailing at me. And I'm just covering up. Officers that brought me in, they were still around and they had stopped him. They say, oh, listen, leave him alone. You can't do that. He's like, yeah, but he killed a cop. He thinks he's a tough guy. I'm going to show him a tough guy. And I'm like, yo, I don't know what's going on. And uh, what ended up happening at that point was they moved me, and I got separated from the rest of the prisoners, and I got put in a bullpen by myself. I can still see prisoners in a bullpen adjacent from me right across. They got bullpens everywhere, but I'm by myself now. So I definitely have all the room to stretch out and lay down and do whatever on a bench. That wasn't the problem. But I start to realize the fear of what that lawyer was talking about that first time when he told my mother that this is serious. And I'm wondering how much more do I have to go through in here before I'm able to get out? Fortunately for me, I never had that problem again. But that's where I first got A taste of reality. The next day came and I go into another bullpen where they have these windows that you can have attorneys come visit you. So they call your name. So eventually my name gets called and uh, I go in there and it's another attorney. It's not Frank Wool. It's not Susan Walsh. Somebody I never met in my life. His name is Norman Rima. And Norman Rima comes and he tells me, he says, "Listen, Mr. Velasquez, we're about to go in front of the judge, and you're going to be arraigned. But I just want to put you on point to a few things that are important. You're being charged with capital murder." I said, "What is that?" He says, "You're facing the death penalty." I said, "What? The death penalty? I mean, I don't understand what's going on. And everything is spinning. The walls are spinning." Norman Reem is talking, it's incoherent. I don't know what you're saying, I don't hear you, I block everything out. And I just, I, I don't know how I got to that point. And at that point, I don't even know how I coped with that, how I dealt with that, I don't know. I went into some short sense of trauma and I became numb. I do recall him saying, don't worry about the death penalty which was, didn't do any good, right? But he said, don't worry about the death penalty because Robert Morgenthau has never pursued the death penalty in New York. So within six months, they'll probably drop that and you'll be facing natural life in prison. And I said, Norman, I didn't commit this crime. Why are we talking about death? Why are we talking about natural life? Why aren't we talking about freedom? Why aren't we talking about restoring my status as a citizen? And he's like, listen, you just have to stay strong, but you're not going nowhere. You're not getting bail. You're going to have to go through this process. I said, well, how long is this process going to take? And he said, anywhere from six months to a year, maybe two years, there's no telling. You just got to stay strong. And um, talk about a turning point in life. Everything changed from there. I got sent to Rikers Island. Rikers Island is a war zone. You know, they call that the school of hard knocks. But uh, it's more like Vietnam or going to Iraq. Because everywhere you go, there's blood. And that's all that happens. is humans shedding other humans' blood. And you see it everywhere. There's no way around it. Fight after fight. I mean, I don't know how is it able to navigate through a lot of that, but I made it through. I have no scars, I'm still safe. I'm in one piece, and I'm blessed. Eighteen months I did on Rikers Island. Eighteen months, I was able to navigate through the bullshit, and um, eventually I went to trial. And going to trial was the first time I get to learn how everything unfolded and took place, because for all those months, I still couldn't understand. What's going on? How did it happen? What took place? Why am I here? Those questions weren't answered. They weren't answered by my lawyers. They just, stay strong, John. We're going to make it through. Don't worry about it when we get to trial. What do you mean don't worry about it? Life continues. It doesn't stop for anyone. My children are growing. I watched Jacob's first steps were in a visiting room on Rikers Island for me. Wow. The first time I seen my my son come to me, he's daddy walking. He's smaller than the table. I raised my children in prison. That wasn't easy. And looking back at it now, I can't even take credit for raising my children, actually. So I go to trial. And during the trial, I start to learn things. I learned that this cop tried to interfere with the robbery that was taking place because he owned the establishment. And I knew that the retired relatively cop. early as a retired police officer who owned a gambling place. He also owned the Baskin Robins on 125th Street. He also owned some print shop and another bar. A lot of establishments for a police officer or a retired police officer rather. And he had this legal gambling spot and somebody came in, they're saying the shooter. light-skinned guy with this with these braids or the dreads and he came in he tried to place a bet and this spot is on 125th Street between 125th and 126th and 8th Avenue so this guy comes in it's broad daylight somewhere around noon and he comes and he places a bet So when he comes into place to bet, the guy's like, yo, listen, we don't do that here. You're a stranger. Get out of here. He's like, I ain't no stranger, man. I'm not a cop. I'm from the projects. He says, yeah, I'm from the projects. I played my number on the east side, man. I'm not trying to go down there. Let me just play my number. So they're like, all right, here. So he goes to fill out the betting slip. They said he filled out the wrong slip. This is Robert Jones testifying, right? Because I learned everything through testimony. So now Robert Jones says he filled out the wrong betting slip. He takes it throws it out and fills out the right slip for him. So then he leaves. It said 45 minutes later to an hour later, this guy comes back, knocks on the door. The number's about to come out. They're not taking more bets. He said, yo, let him in, let him in. Don't worry about it, he was here earlier. So he's like, yo, I want to place another bet. He said, yo, bets, bets are closed, but the number's about to come out. Just stick around. Next thing you know, another knock comes on the door. And then um, the doorman's at the door, and he's like, yo, there's another guy here, man. We can't keep letting these guys in. Next thing you know, they said, this light-skinned guy pulls out a gun. He's like, you know what it is, let my man in. The guy comes in, next thing you know, they tell everybody, get on the ground. And I don't know what happened, but there was an exchange of fire, and eventually the officer, or the retired officer, wound up
0: dead on the ground. So the pandemonium inside the bookie joint, or the illegal numbers joint, is total. You've got people being tied up. You've got people jumping over things. You've got gunshots ringing out. You've got people fleeing. And in the process, a retired police officer is killed. So here you are at the trial, and you're being represented by Norman
5: Reamer. Norman Reamer and Frank Gould. And now you've been in the system for 18 months? At that time, yes. To be precise... I turned myself in February 2nd, 1998. I walked into that precinct. The choice to be in that lineup was the last choice I made as a free man. I was on trial in October of 1999.
0: Right. So over a year and a half in the most dangerous prison in New York state, which is
5: Rikers Island. So the trial. At the trial, this is where I get the revelation of what occurred. You have several witnesses who come and they testify. What people need to realize is that everybody that was at this illegal gambling spot was engaging in criminal activity. So every single one of those people could have been arrested and charged with a crime where the murder of a retired police officer occurred. So it was serious for all of them. They were all under pressure. And then you have to think about the response. You're talking about the center of Harlem, In broad daylight, a retired officer who worked that area, who owned the Baskin-Robbins in that area, was shot and killed. There has to be a response so that the people in that neighborhood, the residents of Harlem, understand that this is not tolerable. There has to be a response so that the people and the residents of Harlem can understand that this is still a safe environment. And that's why there's so much pressure to bring somebody to jail.
0: And you bring up another interesting point, which is that everybody involved had a very strong motive to Absolutely. want to identify you because it takes the heat off of them. Right. I mean, it's as, it's as straightforward as it could be. I mean, these are all people who were engaged in nefarious activities of various different degrees, mm-hmm. and the situation provided them a very convenient way to make this problem go away. And that opportunity was sitting right in front of them. Absolutely. All they had to do was point to you
5: all they had and to say,
0: do. that's the guy who did it. Now we go through the trial. All the evidence has been presented. Prosecutors do their thing. The defense does its thing. As we know, the defense did a very competent job in your case, but... They were hamstrung by the fact that they didn't have the money to do the proper investigations leading up to the trial. And the fact is, that's where the real stuff happens, right? My- it, that's where you, you you can't go into a war with a toy pistol, right? In fact, that's kind of what happens in these cases when you have— a defense team that isn't given access to the evidence, that isn't given the resources or the time because they're so busy to properly investigate the situation and then they're going in there and they're they're doing the best job that they can Mm -hmm. and presenting the best arguments that they can but they don't have the information that they need that actually in your case had they been able to do that there's It's almost impossible to imagine that a jury would have convicted you. But that's exactly what happened, and that's why we're sitting here right now. And let's talk about that. So the moment comes when all the evidence has been presented, the jury goes out. And they didn't go out for a short time either. No.
5: They were out for a long time. They started getting their instructions Monday, and they started deliberating Tuesday. And from Tuesday, from 10 in the morning to 10 at night, Wednesday, from 10 in the morning to 10 at night, Thursday from 10 in the morning to 10 at night into Friday, where the judge is telling them in the evening, if you do not come back with a verdict, you will be sequestered. That means that they were going to be held and they weren't going to be able to go home over the weekend. Probably about another hour later, hour and a half later, they came back with a verdict. And they found me not guilty of murder in the first degree.
0: That was the first ruling, right? So you had reason to be optimistic now. All of a sudden, you're like, okay. So not guilty, murder of the first not degree. Not guilty in
5: the first degree. And then guilty, guilty, guilty. I just kept hearing it over and over again for every other charge. There were charges of robbery, charges of attempt murder, another charge of murder for the same exact crime that I was just acquitted of. Right. The only reason again. why it was murder in the first degree was because of the occupation, the former occupation of the person who got killed. Right? Because he was a police officer, I was facing the death penalty. But I wasn't facing the death penalty at that particular phase. I was actually facing the same charge, 125, 27, murder in the first degree, natural life in prison. No opportunity for parole, never to be released again. And that's what they acquitted me of. See, but the jury doesn't understand what's going on. In fact, through investigations in another film that, that's taking place now... I found out that several jurors in that jury room, in that deliberation room, had an impression that I might be able to go home in two years as long as they acquitted me of the top charge and found me guilty of the lesser. And they figured that I was young enough to be able to bounce back from that and continue with my life. I have no idea where they got that impression because two decades have passed and I'm still in prison.
0: But that's extremely important because now... With that information, you can sort of see into the mind of some of the jurors where they're sitting there and you have whatever number of them, two, three, are going, the guy didn't do it, the guy didn't do it. And the other guys are going, I want to go home. And he's only going to be in for two years. Just go along with us. Maybe he did it. Maybe he didn't. We can't sit here all weekend. I got things to do with my kids. I got to get back from whatever the hell they're saying, right? Absolutely. And,
5: And it's obvious that this occurred because it took four days to come back with a verdict. So there was obviously some dissension in that room.
0: Yeah. If it was a clear-cut case, they would have it would have been out of there in an hour. They wouldn't have stayed for lunch. So now you're found guilty on all these charges. Mm-hmm. You end up in this unbelievable situation. And, and here we are right now inside the walls of Sing Sing almost 20 years later. Right. How
5: did you manage to cope? Where does that spirit come from? It was an organic process. So it wasn't a methodical process. It wasn't thought out. It just kind of occurred. Basically, How I saw life was once I got out the fog, because it took me a few years to get out the fog. What I realized is that life is about balance. So I'm at a low, the lowest I could possibly be to be alive on earth. I consider my circumstances being buried alive. I say that a lot. I still believe that. And I have this philosophy about time. And I said, I've been sentenced to 25 of life. I wasn't even 25 years old when that happened. So I was looking at a portion of time that I hadn't even lived yet under the circumstances that I was in. And I couldn't see that. So I had to start lying to myself. And I didn't realize they were lies then. But 20 years later, you look back and you say, every year I told myself it would be my last in prison. I did that for 19 years. And I'm still here. So I was lying to myself, not knowing, but it was that sense of hope that allowed me to rise from the ashes of oppression into this resilient spirit that I've acquired. And the balance was about how do I reach beyond the boundaries of prison and become a person who's felt outside of those boundaries, how can i help others live and that's where i started to acquire a love for writing because my letters can reach outside the walls my voice wasn't out yet but i utilize writing and you can change your life in prison so instead of just taking time the way i look at it is this my philosophy personally is that life is precious there's no doubt about that and time is priceless and why is time priceless? Because our lives as humans are being measured by the time that we spend alive on this earth. And if I'm gonna be spending all this time in prison where I don't have particular responsibilities to anything except for my children and my mother, then I can utilize this time to learn because I have access to read. So I start reading and I start listening and I start watching and I start observing. And I start to realize that there's an untapped pool of resources in prison that exist. What I'm around is a compounded environment that's actually a microcosm of society. And the majority of the individuals that I'm around are the people who took the wrong path in life. So by sitting down and speaking to them and learning what caused them to come across this path, I've found answers that we can utilize as preventative measures. So now I've learned to take the tools that are around me and utilize them to spread the word, become a voice for the voiceless, and try to create healthy communities from the inside out. And that's how these projects started to take place. We have a project called Voices From Within right now. Voices From Within are a group of individuals who are using the power of their testimony, guilty individuals, that are using the power of their testimony to reach out to the youth and tell them, you don't want to do this.
0: And I've seen the voices from within, and I recommend anybody check it out. It's so powerful because there are people who shot someone, killed someone. They've taken life. They've taken life, and they have such an incredible sense of remorse and responsibility for their actions, and they're channeling it into a need to help others not make those same mistakes right. there's one that sticks in my mind the guy who you know was in the movie theater right and Absolutely. Uh, you know what the rival gang or something like that started shooting and he shot back in the dark and Mm -hmm. shot an innocent person and you know you almost put yourself in that situation and and it's so vivid when you see him talk about it and the pain that he feels of having taken away as he says the son of somebody or the brother or the it's a very very powerful thing and a very positive thing it's turning a negative into a positive.
2: Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right
6: around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion,
4: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Aside from the voices from within, there's a number of other things that you've accomplished in prison. Absolutely. Why don't you just run through some of the the laundry
5: list of things? For me, these weren't tasks, this was a lifestyle that I've adopted. So in running through them, a lot of them are vivid, but I never realized how much I've actually accomplished until I was tasked with putting this together for clemency. It all started with a think tank in an inmate organization. And before you knew it, I became the community organizer of the facility. And I started getting involved anything that's positive or if anybody needed help, how to put something together. I had this tenacity that was inherent to just be able to put things together. And we started doing it. When I came to this facility, there were a lot more options available. Sing Sing is the big house of New York. It's the prison, right? But it has been redubbed into Sing Sing University in a documentary about Hudson Link that has been on HBO. So I started to go to college, right? I started to acquire a degree in behavioral science. And I started to apply what I was learning between that and what I've learned on my own and what was happening in organizations. And then I found like-minded individuals, and we called ourselves the Forgotten Voices, and we said, you know what? We need to reach out to people who can make and affect change. So it's teaching children, and we're working with the children of incarcerated parents because they're the closest ones to us, but we're trying to work with all children, and we're trying to reach out to organizations to help children choose better options in life and utilize the experiences of those who have choose bad options in life as a platform of experience to learn from, saying you don't have to come here to learn this. You can be better.
0: And it's so important because we know that number one factor that determines whether a child will end up in prison is not education or race or socioeconomic factors, it's whether or not they've had a parent in prison. So the idea that you're able to interfere and intervene, I should say, mm-hmm. and help to prevent that from happening is is so critical in, in stopping that pipeline because those those kids deserve as much of a chance as anybody else.
5: I think what's important to uh, discuss when we discuss the projects and what I've accomplished with these projects is to talk about how it really came to where it is today, right? So what ended up really occurring was in 2002, an individual came into my life. His name is Dan and He's a producer of NBC and he did the documentary Conviction. He did the investigation that proves that I am an innocent man. And February 2012, when that documentary aired, I was already heavily active in positive endeavors in prison. But when it aired, so many people reached out to me. And I'm talking about young people, old people, all kinds of people all over the world. But in particular, there were young people reaching out to me and telling me that my story changed their lives. Some of them were actively involved in the street life and realized that if an innocent man can come to prison, then I'm really getting there and I might be the next one. And what that did was, cause in going back again, I'm gonna go back and forth in 2004, I was the captain of the youth, youth assistance program in Green Haven. And I used to deal with youth and we give them tours of the prison. And we we deal with them in a therapeutic manner. So from seeing how film works and seeing that for years, I've been trying to get my voice outside the boundaries of this wall to reach people, to enact change in these communities and to change people's lives. I realized that the media is a tool to be able to get us to them because the problem we had when I was upstate in the youth assistance program was the resources to get the children to the prison so that we can speak to them. We were having an effect on them, but if we only saw them one time, we would never see them again because the resources to get them up there that one time was hard enough to get them to come back and do a reinforcement project was even harder. But I realized that we can bring the youth assistance program to them by doing this. And in in the same time, other individuals in prison were reaching out to me and saying, I'm innocent too. I need help. I need the type of help that you have. And I started passing names on to Dan Slepian, right? And these individuals have gotten out of prison. Eric Glisson served 17 years for a crime he didn't commit. He was featured on Dateline, a Bronx tale. That was our work. Johnny Incopier, his case was just dismissed last week in Manhattan court. Another individual. We have Richard Rosario, a very dear and personal friend of mine, as is Eric Glisson, 20 years for a crime he did commit, shot him down in the courts all the way through. Six months later, the influence of media and a new prosecutor going into the Bronx became the perfect storm, and now he's a free man. And these are individuals I've been around. I've been around so many individuals who have been released over this time. This is like a whole nother life that I've lived in here. The ability to affect change in others' lives and to see innocent men become free men based upon work that we've done together. To see prisoners who have taken lives trying to give back to life. To see all of these things taking place in the most unlikeliest place is amazing. And it's the driving force that keeps me vigilant, that keeps me alive, and that keeps me resilient today despite my circumstances, despite the devastation and the trauma that we've had to go through. Just think about this. My children, for the first 10 years of my incarceration, Remember, one was just a month old, one was three years old. They spent five days in school and one day in prison because my mother brought them up religiously every week. My mother worked hard as a union organizer, five days working, coming up one day, bringing two young children to prison. What kind of social life did they have? They've experienced severe trauma. Vanessa, her and I were together. We were going to raise our children together. We're not together anymore, but I don't blame her. I was facing 25 years in prison, we weren't 25 years old. I left her with an unfair burden of having to raise two children in a broken home, a home that was broken by an egregious miscarriage of justice. The trauma just continues to spread throughout a community. When an innocent man is convicted, he's not the only person who experiences the trauma as a result. The entire community will be affected because of the children, because of everything. You ask me what the worst thing that I've experienced in prison, the worst thing that I've experienced in prison is that my son became a victim to prison. My son came to prison because I wasn't there to guide him. OK, he's not innocent, but he, if he had me, he would have had a different life. And in that sense, he was innocent. Whatever he got charged for. He did, but he shouldn't have had to be in a position to be raised without a father and a role model in his life to teach him what's right, to guide him, to see, yo listen, I see you going wrong, I'm not gonna let you do that, to pull him up. I don't get that. I get two, three hours of his life on a visit every once in a while. You think he's giving me what he's going through? Nah, I'm going on a visit, he's telling me I'm fine. Meanwhile, he has to go back and face those demons in the Bronx. It's very unfair. Getting off the the, the negative note and and going to some of the more positive things besides the people that I've been able to touch, the thing I'm most proud about throughout this entire ordeal is my mother. My mother, she's carried my weight in a devastating way. She's the strongest person I know. She's been a father to my children. She's been amazing. I don't know anybody who has the strength that she has and the drive and the determination to carry the burden that was left by this miscarriage of justice. My mother's old, man. She was young and she was vibrant. She deserves to have me there taking care of her. I'm her only child, not been in prison. She's been taking care of me since I was born. That's not fair. 41 years old, she deserves better. She's been through way too much. Trauma is different for different people, and while I'm in the experience, prison has taught me that in order to survive, you have to become numb, and I've become numb to my environment and the circumstances in it so that I can deal with it, but in some regard, I haven't dealt with it yet, and I don't know what I'm going to, and I don't know what's going to happen as a result, but I hope what has happened to others won't happen to me. David Ranthas served 24 years for a crime he didn't commit, and within a week of his release, he had a heart attack. Within that same year, he had two more. Anthony Yarborough served 22 or 23 years for a crime he did commit. They said he killed his own sister and mother. DNA exonerated him. He died within a year of his release. Willie Lopez, personal friend of mine, we worked together, got out of prison after about 22, 23 years, and he died within a year of his release. I'm 41 years old, my father died at 49, and he wasn't killed. People need to understand how serious, wrongful convictions are. I've been told that 11 million people cycle through the American penal system annually. Even if we were to imagine a 99% success rate in the accuracy of convictions, 1% of that 11 million cycle through prison for crimes they don't commit, that's 110,000 people on an annual basis. And if they come through for a serious offense, think about the type of time that they have to face. Fernando Bermuda is a personal friend of mine, 17 years. Jeffrey Deskovic, personal friend of mine, 16 years. David Lemus, the person who introduced me to Dan Slepian from the Palladium murder, 14 years. Eric Glisson, an individual I helped get out, 17 years. Richard Rosario, an individual I helped get out, 20 years. Johnny N. an individual I helped get out, 25 years. The list will continue to go on. The years go into the thousands.
0: People are hearing this story. It's an outrageous miscarriage of justice. It's got to be fixed. I'm sure people are wondering, what can they do to help? What can they do to help you in particular? We've talked about things that people can do in general on the show. Is there anything they can do to help in this particular situation? And and, and in as, as concise a manner as possible, is there something that you would have people do to help, as you've helped so many other people reverse their wrongful convictions?
5: I always think that we can't make change, but we have demonstrated that we can. And I believe in the power of people. I think I need people, particularly the listeners of this show, to believe in the power of themselves. There's a website being utilized to advocate for for my freedom. It's called freejohnadrianvelazquez.org. J-O-N-A-D-R-I-A-N-V-E-L-A-Z-Q-U-E-Z. If however many people listen to this show were to go and get 10 people to sign that petition, we would have thousands. I'm a stamp away from anybody who cares. I'm sitting in Sing Sing Correctional Facility, my number is 2303 Reach out. I'll tell you how you can help. Go to the website. They'll tell you how you can help.
0: I think that's the most important thing is go to the website. It's Velasquez.org. And again, that's J-O-N-A-D-R-I-A-N-V-E-L-A-Z-Q-U-E-Z. And then, of course, .org. So org. Go there. Learn how you can help. John has generously offered to have people write to him. And like I said earlier, you should expect a letter back that you're going to think he must have had help from a a great novelist or a a professor of English at an Ivy League university, but he writes beautiful letters.
5: You have already somehow reached society because over the time of December and Christmas, I got a stack of mail about this big. I appreciate that. Thank you. I want everyone to know how touched I am by their humanity and their opportunity to say, you know what, somebody cares about you. And that's some of the energy that I utilize to basically catalyze my drive. So I appreciate it. I want people to be patient. I've been working on a petition for clemency. I've been working on my appeal, but I will try to get back to everyone. And upon my release, I guarantee that I'll be available somewhere on social media and we'll get to everyone.
0: Yeah, we'll have a big party, but everybody's going to have to sign some petitions to get in, that's for (laughs) for sure. JJ, I want to thank you for being on the show.
5: I want to thank Revolver Productions for having me. I want to thank you, Jason, for having me and for doing everything that you have. You're an amazing individual. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to the first episode of Wrongful Conviction Behind Bars, and it won't be the last. I think it's very important that we bring these stories to light from inside the maximum security prison, in this case, Sing Sing. I want to thank the superintendent, Capra, for allowing us to film with J.J. inside the prison walls. And again our guest today john adrian velasquez john i'm looking forward to seeing you as i saw felipe the other day on the outside with your family and it's going to happen because we're not going to give up until it does thank you don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts it really helps And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardus. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at wrongfulconviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One.